What up, rockers and robots, truth sinkers, intronauts? It's me, Mikey. That wasn't very raucous, let's try that again. What up, rockers and robots, truth sinkers, seekers, and intronauts? It's me, Raucous Mikey, and I have no van. I am no longer living a van life, and I've got a lot of explaining to do. All this and more in the newest episode, and the last episode, for real this time, of Mobile Fortress Frank. Buckle up, motherfuckers, this one's gonna be a humdinger. Welcome to Mobile Fortress Frank, a podcast about van life, artist life, doing things your own way, and always living it up. I'm the driver, Raucous Mikey, and I'm going to talk to you about a lot of stuff. Buckle up. Let's do this. I should say right off the bat, rockers and rollers, that uh, this entire episode or multiple episodes to come are absolutely chock full of trigger warnings. I've never given a trigger warning before that I remember, uh, but now's the time. Um, I'm going to be discussing very serious, serious mental health and medical issues and Uh, there are mentions of things that may be very triggering to those with similar mental health issues. So you have been warned. That is your trigger warning. So if you don't want to hear about it, I suggest you just not listen to this episode at all. If you are not going to listen to this, I am safe. Uh, I am with good people, and I'm going to be okay, but everything is going to be different from now on. For those of you who choose to keep listening, uh, I believe the last time I recorded was August 21st. Before I continue, I also want to preface by saying that I regret nothing. To this very second, I regret nothing that I have done or any of the choices I have made. Because now I understand. My last podcast was August 21st. And if I remember correctly, I ended on a very positive, uh, optimistic note for a change. Uh, And I had mentioned that so much of my podcast had been complaining and that I needed to quit my bitchin'. <laughs> I'm gonna chuckle a lot throughout this entire episode because I am sure that in this context, in this forum, I'm going to see so much irony, um, and so are you, probably, if you've listened before. So, 
August 21st. I can't bring myself to listen to that episode, um, it, so I don't know what I did say, but I did know that the, the last segment I recorded was called Quit Your Bitchin'. So, that's where I left it. Um, I was in Illinois. I w- had been struggling to make ends meet while living in a van alone. I was door dashing and trying to replace my laptop so that I can continue to uh, work freelance as an illustrator. Uh, In April, about halfway through uh, what is previously recorded, uh, I had a pretty severe uh, meltdown, and I recorded it for this podcast. Um, In... In talking about myself and giving history and background, uh, I opened some doors. Um, and there had been incidents around that time that opened some doors, and it was a bad time for me mentally. After the recording of that episode in April, I changed the name of this podcast from just Mobile Fortress Frank Van Life to Mobile Fortress Frank Van Life and Mental Health. And I knew that I had serious mental health concerns and that those had led to me finding it necessary to seclude myself to a vehicle and travel aimlessly around the United States. That is what I felt I needed to do. I am extremely glad I did it. And it's funny how things work out. So I had recorded... (laughs) The segment called Quit Your Bitchin' and decided that I was going to stop complaining quite so much because nobody really needed to hear that. Um, and I don't know if I mentioned it in that last episode because I don't remember how long uh, this had been a thing and I was probably a little embarrassed to mention it also, but um, I was door dashing and I was having increasing success with door and making increasing amounts of money. Uh, but I was very strapped. Um, gas was costing me a lot. Over the summer, gas was incredibly expensive where I was. Um, and again, that was in Illinois, central Illinois to southern Illinois, um, was where it was for most of uh, August, July and August. Um, I noticed around the time I recorded the last episode, uh, a whining noise whenever I started the van. Um, I was making money, and I had actually had my highest, my last day door dashing, which I think was August 23rd, was the most money I have made door dashing ever. And I believe I'd said that so many different times on this, on this podcast, where I would say, uh, today was the best day I ever had door dashing. I remember saying that so many times. So, so that was an increasingly successful thing, Um, but DoorDash keeps changing the rules, um, and causing you to run around a lot more for the same amount of money, and I was struggling to keep enough gas in the tank to actually profit. Um, it was kind of a, a fucky situation where, you know, I wasn't bringing in money as an artist anymore, so I had to put all my eggs in the DoorDash basket in order to even exist and live. Um, I was buying a lot of gas. I was buying a lot of hydration, um, and, uh, I was 
maintaining the van as best I could and trying to gain money because I knew the van needed maintenance. Um, and then, literally, around the time I finished recording that last episode, if not as soon as I finished recording it, uh, when I started the van, it acted a little funny and started making a whining noise. It ran fine. I worked for two more days. That sound not only persisted, but got worse. So I was trying to sock away as much money as I could because I knew something was going to break in the van. I had it up to about 67,000 miles, I believe, and had had very good luck with it so far up to that point. And the sound to me sounded like a flywheel whining. It was like a metallic metal-on-metal metal sound, and it was definitely something rotary because of the way it sounded. The sound didn't continue the entire time the van was running, but it would do it the worst when I started it and when I would accelerate. Sometimes it would make a horrible whining sound. I don't know that much about modern vehicles. If it's anything prior to 1990, I could fix any vehicle. Or at least know what is needed to fix any vehicle prior to 1990. However, a 2019, not so much. Um, so, given what I know about old cars, what I heard sounded like a flywheel. Which means I'm going to have starter issues. Or perhaps alternator, if there even is an alternator in a 2019 vehicle. I don't think there is. Um... But it started starting a little funky, too. So then, kids, it's like, how much can you door dash before this vehicle breaks? Um, I was still keeping a good attitude. I was surprisingly calm throughout this and was just very focused on making money and getting the van into a shop and getting it dealt with. Uh, not to mention the giant mounting list of vehicular problems I was facing, such as registration, issues and setbacks, uh, title issues and setbacks, DMV issues and setbacks, insurance issues and setbacks, uh, it was becoming increasingly problematic living in the van. Uh, COVID did not fucking help any of the above. I didn't help any of the above either. I, on the 24th of August, I woke up in the morning, it was extremely hot outside. I had parked overnight at the Walmart in Springfield, Illinois, near the Automotive Center, mind you. So around the side of the building, under a tree near the Automotive Center, and I knew for a couple days that there was a good chance that I would have trouble starting the van at some point. So I parked near the Auto Center in hopes of getting a jump um, if the van wouldn't start, because I thought I was losing a starter or a battery or something. I had already been researching and reading about what the issues might be based on how the van was behaving when I started it, and it did indeed look like the starter was out. Uh, there were a number of fuses I could check. I had a list of things that could be the problem. Um, I don't like to take a vehicle to a mechanic without sounding like I know what the fuck's wrong with it so that I don't get screwed over. Um, So I parked overnight near the automotive center at the Walmart that I'd parked at a million times before. I woke up in the morning. Um, I got paid. I cashed out from DoorDash. Uh, I knew I would need gas. Oh, no, I had already gotten gas. Of course, of course, I uh, had the gas I needed. Um, 
I went inside Walmart. I was already dripping sweat early in the morning because it was extremely hot. Um, it had been hot for days and days and days. There was very little rain. Um, so I went into the Walmart. I got some things to eat and drink. That with gas pretty much cleaned out what I had made door dashing that I could spend. So I took care of myself first and made sure that I could work that day. I get in the van. I go to start it. And it doesn't have a normal key, it has an auto start key on the fob. So it's not like a normal ignition where you turn the key. You do turn the key, but it's not a physical key. You put the plastic thing in the other plastic thing, and you twitch it and slightly turn it, and then the car takes over from there and starts itself. That's the problem. Because when you have a car that has only an automatic start, and no physical key, and you only have the key fob, well, I don't know if you're following me, but what happened was, uh, when I turned the key to turn the van on, the starter failed, and even though I turned the key off, the starter continued to try to engage itself endlessly. Like, click, 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 and that got louder and louder and louder and louder until it stopped on its own, even though I had removed the automatic start key from the ignition and pulled it out and screamed no at the top of my lungs a bunch of times. The starter engaged and engaged and engaged and engaged and engaged. And I got out of the van to pull the fuse, to check the fuses for the starter, and to see the state of my battery... I mean, the, the van made no attempt to start whatsoever. I turned off all the bells and whistles on the inside to not continue to use electricity because it's obvious I have a big problem. I popped the hood. I can hear the battery sizzling, which means that battery is now boiling. I had turned the key one time. <laughs> so, I knew better than to keep trying. I waited a while. I read a lot of things about what could be wrong with the van. I did not go into the Walmart Automotive Center because I knew damn well I needed to drink my cold drinks and eat my food because that's all I was going to get. I'm going to cry during this episode at random points, and I hope you're prepared for that. I was not kidding with my fucking trigger warning. I don't know how I'm going to act. I might be calm, cool, and collected. There's a really good chance I'm going to lose my shit. And I've never hit anything from you all before, so why should I start now? Well, you know, except for my real name and my location. Um, so your old pal realizes that he needs to really focus on not panicking. Uh, but the van I lived in had broken down, and I didn't have money for repairs. I was behind on payments, so there wasn't going to be any roadside assistance. And if there was roadside assistance, it wouldn't have done me much good. I'm not ashamed of that. Money was very tight. I was already living on a razor's edge, and I had made that choice. And I knew very well, and I know that I have recorded myself saying many times, that it could all go tits up at any moment. And that that was the risk I was taking. So therefore, I realized that I couldn't really be angry, and I couldn't really freak out and complain, because I was on a not-complaining kick. And I sat down in the shade, I opened all the doors of the van, 
because it wasn't, I hadn't even gotten to turn the air conditioning on, so the day just got progressively hotter, and the sun passed right over the top of the van, and I normally would have moved to a completely different area of town by that time of day, but I had to stick it out and guard my shit, because guess what? I couldn't lock the van either. Well, I did lock it while I was in it, but I realized that I only had so many more chances to lock and unlock the vehicle because, again, there is no physical key, there is only the key fob. And I have already learned the hard way what happens when you lock yourself out of that van. Because I had just recently had to get myself into that van when I locked myself out of it. So I knew once the power locks stopped working, they weren't going to work anymore. And then I didn't have any other way to get into the van, and so I shouldn't keep locking and unlocking the doors. However, it was so fucking hot that sitting inside the van was killing me. I spent the very last of the money I had on cold drinks, and I sat in the shade, and I calmly ate, and I drank a lot of cold water, and some tea, I believe, and some juice. And I just tried really hard to hydrate because I figured I was going to need to start walking. I then packed a bug out bag the best I could and tried to quickly decide what things could go with me and what things were going to get left behind. Because I knew that if I left that van there, it was going to get repossessed because I couldn't stop that from happening, or it was going to get impounded and then repossessed. And I didn't even have the money to fix what the fuck was wrong with it, so I obviously didn't have the money to deal with whatever was going to happen next, and I needed to get myself to somewhere safe. And that was my concern. Because it was very, very hot outside that day, and the sun was brutal, and there wasn't much shade to begin with. I sat there like an idiot in the grass at a Walmart, sitting next to a nearly brand new van full of crap, with curtains blowing in the Illinois wind and all of the doors wide open because I can't roll the windows down. And I sat there for a couple hours and tried to figure out what to do. And the entire time I was doing that, although I remained calm, there was a very cold, familiar feeling creeping up inside me. As I tried to think of a way out of that situation, and that old, cold, familiar voice reminded me in its devilish whisper that there is always a way out of everything. And so my thoughts then were not only of what I could do to fix my vehicular and physical situation, but what would be the most efficient way to end my life. Now, I know that I have told my listeners before that I know better than to ever attempt suicide again because I have never regretted in my life anything as deeply as attempting suicide when I was 18 years old and I know better than to do that. So I tried to calm myself down, I breathed in and out, I looked at how beautiful the leaves look in the sunshine and tried to remind myself that it is not okay to entertain those thoughts. And then what happened next was that those thoughts persisted to the point that they were the only thoughts I was having. And so, with hat in hand, I then texted two people, perhaps three. 
I told the only three people I was currently still in contact with, actually two of the three people I was currently still in contact with, and one of them I had told to go fuck themselves. I texted all three of those lovely women and told them that I was experiencing suicidal thoughts, that I was stranded, and that I was going to call 911 and go to the hospital. And that is what I did. I very calmly sat and enjoyed the breeze, reminded myself that there's a lot of beautiful things around me. I called 911 and very calmly explained to them that I was having a mental health crisis and that I needed help so that I would not harm myself. They then handled it very, very well, I will give them that, and the person I was speaking to uh, on in my 911 call then asked what I had done, if anything, to harm myself already, at which point I said nothing. But I, and they said, please stay where you are, and if you need to stay on the line, stay on the line, and we'll have someone right there. And I then, in very full detail, described my situation and where I could be found and what I was doing and what I was wearing. And I got off the phone and I sat there very calmly and waited for the ambulance to come. The ambulance came and took me to the hospital. And because COVID was rearing its head in a very big way, I then waited in the ER until three o'clock that morning and went through a lot of interviews and a lot of assessments and answered a lot of questions and was very forthright about my mental health issues. At which point I was admitted to the hospital um, and gave my consent to be admitted for psychiatric evaluation. I spent a week in the psych ward. I did not harm myself in any way, and I'm very lucky that that situation did not get out of hand, and I attribute that to my have had any, had, to my history of having that happen so many times before that I recognize it, I can be mindful of what it is, and I can avoid actually killing myself. And I know that there are so many fucking people that don't realize that it isn't okay and don't, don't have that good fortune and that ability to stop themselves due to experience. And so for those people who have fallen, I kind of feel it's my responsibility to not ever do that selfish thing again and to do the hard thing and ask for help. All three of the people I contacted were extremely loving and supportive and all three of them told me they would do anything to come and see me. I left it at that and said that I would let them know whatever happened at the hospital. Um, and I used my first phone call to call Skipper McBarnburner and let her know what was going on. In my experience, the psych ward was very much like the movies, my friends. Um, that might have been only my perception of it or an exaggeration. But I remember thinking on day one that it was exactly like the movies. I'm going to take a little break because I'm awful fucking choked up. And I just laid a lot of heavy stuff in your lap. I didn't sing you no punk rock. I didn't sing you no oldies. 
I didn't talk about anything fun so far, and we're 22 minutes into this episode. I missed talking to this, uh, little rectangle. I got a lot to talk about, and I've been doing my best to keep quiet these days. I'm not gonna be raucous. Um, this will be my last act as a raucous Mikey. Uh, because we're on to new things. I'm gonna take a little break. I'm gonna get a cup of coffee. And I'm gonna smoke some cigarettes and some marijuana. And I recommend you do the same. Uh, I don't recommend you do any of those three things, but if you are a person that partakes of any of those three things, fuck it, I already gave trigger warnings, so let's get high, we got a lot to talk about. I'll be right back. Okay, let's, let's take a second here and, and just chill a minute. Uh, I've got a cup of coffee here. It's a big old fucking mug. It's a Friday the 13th mug, and I love it. And it's, you know, oversized as a coffee mug should be. I drink a lot of creamer in my coffee, but I also like my coffee very dark. So, I, I think that's just my taste uh, in food and in most things that are consumable. Um, that I find morally acceptable. I tend to do them to excess, or I like for their, their very essence to be excessive. For instance, my favorite cigarettes of all to smoke are Camel Wides. Most people don't really know about them, but they're, they're a normal cigarette with the same amount of tobacco. But they're a little shorter and a little fatter. So it's like a thick version of a normal cigarette. And for some reason, that's more satisfying for me to smoke. They are also extremely harsh for that reason. Because it's wider, it's, a, it's more of a hit of the tobacco. Um, if you're a non-smoker, you're just like, what the fuck is wrong with this person? Um, but if you smoke cigarettes, you know exactly what I mean. But, but I'm kind of that way with things. When I was a beer-drinking man, I liked my beer fucking excessive as well. Like, not only did I drink it to excess, but I also prided myself in knowing a lot about beer and seeking out rare and obscure and potent beers. The same with wine. Um, I tend to take things to a very passionate level when it comes to these things. I'm just killing time right now so that you can get yourself a cup of coffee or a cigarette or maybe a little something-something. I'm going to do a little something-something and then I'm going to smoke a cigarette. But anyway, I got this big cup of coffee. I'm noisy when I drink coffee because I think it should be enjoyed by all. <laughs> so I'm just spreading my enjoyment of the coffee. Uh, so I, I live in an apartment now. I'll just do a quick catch-up refresher and give you time to get yourself a little bit more acclimated and maybe pause this until you're somewhere more private or turn it up if you feel like making everyone in their room uncomfortable or, you know, whatever you got to do. Uh, I'm going to try to harness my inner raucous Mikey for the sake of this recording. Because it, it made me feel heavy recording that last segment, and it, it's going to make me feel heavy again before we're through, and it's going to make you feel heavy too, but you know what? That's why we feel things, because that's all part of life. Well, I'm not sorry, because this is part of life, and I think that a large part of the problem 
is that a lot of us are in denial about a lot of things. On a very grand scale and on a very personal scale. So, let's do this. So, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a psych ward or have been hospitalized for your mental health. I know that more people have than I would realize. Um, because they realize that other people have taken better care of themselves and just went when they thought they should. Um, for whatever reason. I have been diagnosed for most of my life since 18 years old with what at the time was called morbid depression or major depression or major depressive disorder, I believe they call it now. Um, and what makes it different from regular old depression, I guess, is the presence of suicidal ideation or um, of actual suicidal behavior, self-harm, um, with intent. Um, so, when I was 18, I did attempt suicide, and I survived, uh, miraculously, and... You know, once you've attempted suicide at all, um, you're diagnosed with depression, because that's obvious. Um, there's no other reason for someone to want to end their own life other than that something is very wrong. So, that's a no-brainer diagnosis, and that seemed plausible enough to me. Later in life, as I have described before in this podcast, I started developing um, anxiety and panic attacks and some other strange developments, and that ended up being a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. Um, over the years, I have undergone therapy and have learned a lot about mindfulness and uh, have gone through both cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectic behavioral therapy and have had some success with therapy, but not without a lot of my own hard work. Um, you know, a therapist is really just there to get you started on what you've got to do for yourself to be healthy. They can't fix you. But what they can do is arm you with information and the tools you need to, to begin to, to get yourself healthy. Um, so, as I stated, I, I've learned over the years that any thought about suicide is unacceptable and that that is a medical problem. Um, and that's how I've always treated it, that it is a, an illness, a disease even, that causes me to think that, and that it is not okay to do it. It is not okay to even harm yourself. Um, it's definitely not okay if you're thinking about ending your own life, and I know that it's common. Um, something is wrong, and, and that is not the answer. Something else is causing that, and... More often than not, people who have attempted suicide and survived have said that they just wanted their pain to end. And in my own case, that is very, very true. Um, anytime I've been suicidal, it is because I have been in massive amounts of emotional pain and was in a situation I couldn't see myself out of. And at that point, to someone who is uh, clinically depressed or morbidly depressed, um, 
an extremely stressful time will start the thought process of suicidal ideation. And it, once that starts, it's really, really hard to stop it. Um, oftentimes, friends and family of people who have attempted suicide or have committed suicide have said the person seemed fine and never talked about anything like that. Well, sadly, that is often the case. Um, if you are a person who experiences suicidal thoughts, it is of the utmost important that you express them. And if people blow you off, you keep expressing those thoughts without acting on them until you get help from anyone. There are hotlines. There is also a wealth of resources from the National Institute of Mental... It's NAMI, N-A-M-I. I have fucked up. The, the National Alliance for Mental... It's NAMI. It's for your mental health. I will uh, try to remember to put in the show notes uh, any suicide prevention resources, but, I mean, you're probably using a smartphone or a computer right now. Um, there is a wealth of resources out there. I hate to recommend anything specific because I have had bad experiences myself with services that are supposed to prevent you from committing suicide. I shouldn't laugh about that. It's not funny. Um, none of what I'm about to talk about is funny. A lot of it is ironic, however. So, I go to the psych ward. I'm admitted. Uh, there's a lengthy interview process. Um, and they informed me right away that I would probably be there for a five-day uh, period, at least. I was totally okay with that. I was okay with being there for as long as I fucking need to be. Um, and I'm actually surprised I'm not still there. But we'll get into that another time. I am grateful with how I was handled there. I was treated with respect, and I was treated with care. Um, and it was a learning hospital, so even though it kind of sucked on one level, um, I did have people in and out of my room constantly asking me questions and uh, learning. And you know me, um, I, I appreciated being able to speak at length about what was going on with me because I wanted fucking answers. Like, I, I'm 43 years old. Tomorrow's my 44th birthday. Um, I've tackled suicidal episodes five times now. And I'm so tired. I've gone through therapy. I have self-educated myself. I have educated myself at school as much as I could, um, and whatever I've been doing has just not really helped. Um, I've learned so much about myself that, you know, I was isolated in a van traveling the country being an advocate for living it up, and I was doing that for my own good, um, because I knew if I stayed where I was, I was gonna go down in that dark hole, and unfortunately, I'm here to tell you that no amount of running can make that dark hole go away. Unfortunately, kids, that dark hole has got to be dealt with. And so, much to my surprise, this hospital 
really has their shit together when it comes to mental health, and it's actually one of the better psych wards in the country that I just happened to accidentally end up at. And it being a learning hospital is very helpful, because not only do you have a doctor, you have all of the doctor's students, and they're all committed to helping you. Uh, and they're very eager to do so. So, I talked to a lot, uh, I was interviewed by a lot of nursing students was there, and a lot of med students, and the reason for that is, um, was because on day one, everyone came to the consensus that I probably, here it comes, can we get a drum roll? That I most likely have what is known as borderline personality disorder. And let me tell you, that's a fucking doozy to find out when you are 43 years old. I didn't really know anything about it, but I had been interviewed enough times and been asked enough questions about my past, about my present, and about my mental state and my mental health that I had checked off nine of nine things nine of nine, I'm sorry, eight of nine criteria for the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. A diagnosis requires five of the nine criteria. I didn't know much about it. I hadn't learned much about it. Uh, my old pal Vanna Glory and I had been discussing the subject, and I think that we were discussing that out of her own wisdom. I think she was gently hinting to me that I should research the subject of borderline personality disorder for a good reason. Um, so, that is a thing. And when my therapist, and I really wish I could use her name because she did me the greatest service of literally anyone in my entire life by finally being the person to say the words that I've been waiting to hear literally my entire life. And that is, this is what's wrong with you. Here are the reasons we think that. You fit all of them. And they weren't surprised that I didn't know that. And they weren't surprised that I hadn't been diagnosed. And the reason is, borderline personality disorder has not been well understood, ever. It is not well understood right now. It is very recent that we have made any progress, or that the mental health community has made any progress in understanding what borderline personality disorder even is. I'm going to have to start calling it BPD. It's really, it's a mouthful to say it over and over. BPD. It's not bipolar disorder, it is borderline personality disorder. And I will get into what it is, uh, physically and mentally, in a minute. Um, but I need to right now talk about how absolutely amazing it is after 43 years of, of having a diagnosis that was incomplete, still wondering what the fuck is wrong with you. I mean... I was literally running in the middle of nowhere in circles, proclaiming to a recording device that everything is not okay. And 
Not to say that this podcast is a cry for help, it's definitely not, and I'm definitely not the only person with problems, and I'm aware of that on a daily basis. Um, but I now realize that literally, literally, every decision I have ever made has been made under a very dark umbrella. And the most painful thing in my entire life has been the mystery of why can't I ever be happy? Why can't I ever be satisfied? Why must I always be alone? All of these things have been running themes. I have gone to great length in this podcast about how I have eliminated almost all relationships I have ever had or... or those relationships have ended in tragic betrayal and or some form of, of me falling on a sword. Now it's all very clear to me. And, and my life as I knew it ended in the moment that therapist explained to me what this disorder is. She also had already printed out a, an entire book for me to read during my <laughs> stay. And, and mind you, my stay was very extremely monitored and restricted because once you mentioned that you had planned on committing suicide and they asked you if you knew how you were going to and you have a specific plan that you had already thought of, they lock you up. And they lock you up because you are not safe. That's hard to accept when it's about yourself. Especially when you are the person locked up. Thinking about, why the fuck am I locked up? They lock you up because you're not safe. I'm not safe. I have never been safe, it turns out. And that's why I've never felt safe. I'm going to have to take a break before I go into what specifically borderline personality disorder or BPD is. Because I want to really think about it and I want to take a, take a minute and, and make sure that I speak carefully. Because I don't want to misrepresent something that is already so fucking misunderstood. This country has a horrible mental health crisis. And, and I just learned that firsthand for months. Uh, foreshadowing. This will probably be a multi-part episode. I've already almost got an hour recorded and I haven't even really started to talk about what the deal is. And I want to, I want to, I want to be thorough in this talk because this is going to be the end of this podcast. Absolutely. And because I, I literally, it would pain me to listen to it, to listen back through it, because I am telling you that all of every word I have said up until this episode is a person that is not well. And that is a very, very bitter pill to have to swallow. I think back on every decision I ever made now. 
and I think of of how this disorder has affected all of my decisions and all of my relationships and my clear and apparent and obvious inability to succeed when I am an ultra-capable person. I am beyond capable in many regards. And yet there has always been something in my way. And I have expressed that over and over again in this podcast. And now it is very clear what the thing is that is in my way. It has always been a mystery. And as of August 25th, 2021, the mystery was solved. And what that means, rockers and rollers, is that I have the rest of my life to work on it. I'm going to take another break. Uh, I still didn't smoke this bowl. I didn't light the cigarette, and my cup of coffee is now cold, because this is a serious subject, and I keep getting real into it. Take a break. Get yourself something to drink. Let's have a smoke or a Fig Newton or whatever it is you want to do. Whatever it is that, that comforts you and makes you feel nice for a few minutes. Let's take some deep breaths and think about something happy. Um, you may hear cats meow. Um, I live in an apartment right now. You can, you can laugh. You can make fun of me. Um, it's kind of nice. It's temporary. But right now... Um, I'm playing normie, um, because I kind of have to, uh, my life literally depends on it. So, right now, uh, I value having a good friend, and kitties, uh, kitties are therapeutic to have around, because you have to earn their, their trust, and... I feel like I'm a very broken person right now, but it's very comforting to me that I can still get a kitty to purr and cuddle with me at night and, and come running when I call them and eat some food out of my hand or whatever. Um, at least I'm not so bad that cats won't approach me. Nah, that took a month or two, <laughs> but uh, right before I started recording, my, my gangly little pal, Stinky, was rubbing all on me and meowing, and I was hoping I'd catch some of his goofy meows. But when I started talking to myself, he left me the fuck alone, which makes sense. So, yeah, I'm in an apartment. I have roommates. Um, I'm extremely grateful to not be homeless right now, and I'm doing what I can to pull my weight. And I'm, I'm in a very diminished state, rockers and rollers, I'm, I'm definitely not living it up right now, and I guess in a way I am, um, what I'm doing is trying to heal for probably the first time in my life, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try my damnedest to get where I need to be to continue living, or at least work toward living a life like most of you, um, Because from what I understand, that's never been the case for me. Uh, we're going to take a little break. And I'm going to warm up my coffee and, and gather these these uh, 
comfort items. And then when I come back, we'll, we'll ease into it, and I'll do my best to explain what BPD is and what can be done about it. I'll be right back. Uh, pet a cat, if there's one near you. Okay, so, here we are. I'm in a rocking chair with a blanket. I feel so fucking old. I feel, I feel so old. When you spent your whole life doing battle against that life, and then you stop and rest, uh, I'm down, I'm down, I'm fucking so tired, I'm so exhausted, and it's slow progress, if I'm being honest, because the task is daunting. I'm up for that task, but everything has changed, and I've got to change too, and I've got to do a lot of work on my own in order to ever be healthy. To have any hope of being healthy. With that said, let's talk about BPD. What is BPD? What is borderline personality disorder? Well, it's complicated. But I'm going to give you my current understanding based on the book I read called... Uh, this book is called... Sometimes I Act Crazy, and it is the sequel to a book called Stop Walking on Eggshells, and the author's name eludes me right now, but uh, Stop Walking on Eggshells is the first book, and from what I understand, it's very dense and technical, So, and, and uh, the medical community's understanding of BPD was very lacking when the first book was written, and now... With uh, advances in technology, with brain imaging, and our understanding of uh, the way synapses work, and the way neurogenesis works, and so on and so forth, um, the understanding was better when the second book, uh, which was called Sometimes I Act Crazy, was written. It's very well written, and it does an amazing job of, of explaining and describing, with, with no small number of case studies, um, the complexities uh, of BPD. But, okay, so here's how, my understanding of how it works. So, and, and I remember some of this from psychology classes in college, which I aced. Um, I don't know why I felt the need to tell you what grade I got in psychology. I guess because it makes me reputable or authoritative. Um, but, um, sounds fucking stupid. BPD is, um, a disorder that is formed uh, physiologically um, and neurologically. And it is a malformation of neural pathways. There are, there are very distinct stages in, in human psychological development that are, that are uh, when you're young, are just go right down the line with what age you are. Um, and for most children, those are 
pretty unanimous. Um, and when something disrupts one of those stages of development is when disorders can occur. Not always. Um, but in the cases of extreme neglect and trauma, um, the development can be disrupted at one of those stages, and that tends to cascade into all of the other stages of, of the psychological development, anything that relates to the stage that was impeded. So when you're around 24 months old, you establish a concept in your mind, or most people do. I don't want to make too many generalizations, but um, most 24-year-olds, or 24-month-olds, uh, reach a stage of development called object permanence. And what object permanence is, um, is the assurance and the, uh, the concept occurs to the young mind that when something is out of sight, it does not cease to exist. And the most practical application of this thinking is, okay, so the baby is in its crib, the baby cries, the mother comes in the room, the baby gets its needs met, the mother leaves the room, the baby is aware that if it cries again, the mother will come back into the room. So, so the mind develops the concept that mother is, or father, or whatever, and it could be a fucking rubber ball, for instance, but it's the concept that when something leaves your sight, it doesn't cease to exist. Now, what can disrupt this stage of development is exactly that. You the young mind, when not given, in cases of neglect or abuse, an opportunity to, to have experienced uh, reliability enough to ever to form the idea of anything being permanent. And, and I remember reading about studies with children, and this is how they, they learned about object permanence, is that they would, for instance, put a, put a toy in a baby's hands and then cover the toy with a blanket or, or put the toy down in front of the child and cover it with a blanket and a, a healthy, uh, developmentally child will then know that the toy is under the blanket. Whereas a child that is not um, developed object permanence, the, the ball ceases to exist when the blanket covers it. Or, or at least what was observed was that the child would come, become disoriented and unnerved and anxious when the blanket covered the ball, because in the child's mind the ball just ceased to exist and was replaced with a blanket. So, BPD is that. BPD, well, they think that BPD is caused by the lack 
of an established concept of object permanence, i.e., when mother leaves the room, mother doesn't cease to exist. Mother will still be there the next time you cry. BPD is the lack of that understanding. So BPD is, I cried and mother came and then mother left. What will happen next time I cry? From that moment on, when that is, when that stage of development is, is not established, like in my own case, it becomes almost impossible to rely on anyone because you literally have no concept of what it is to be able to rely on anyone. In other words, even though I think that I've always trusted the people I loved, I can't define what trust means. I literally... I'm just going on faith that I understand the definition of the word trust, but I, I don't know that I feel it about anyone. I have confidence in people. I have faith that people will do certain things, um, but I don't trust anyone, and I've said that repeatedly in this podcast. I, I don't trust anyone. I don't trust myself. How many times have I talked about life being a simulation or a game? That is also very much a hallmark of borderline. So because this idea of object permanence is never established, the brain from that moment on doesn't form properly. And it gets pretty complicated at that point because I'm, I'm not a neurologist and so you can't really bank on anything I'm going to say too much, but from what I understand, it affects the connections between the two hemispheres, meaning that in the case of the borderline, it is very possible that both hemispheres are simultaneously interfering with each other, but both are extremely active. And most importantly, the connections between the base mind or or the hippocampus and and the amygdala and those are the the parts of the brain that regulate uh and this is very important the parts of the brain that regulate appetite sexual desire um memory emotion control and identity i'm sorry not identity appetite sexual desire memory, and emotion control. Those centers of the brain fail to properly connect to the frontal lobe where it is believed that the identity resides, or the personality, or the persona. So from what I understand, there is a lack of connection between memory, sexual desire, appetite, and that's not just appetite for food, that's appetite in general, um, emotion regulation and impulse control are not connected to my persona. It also can cause the persona itself 
to become dissociative. And this is true in my case. And, and to, to, to read this and to hear somebody say it back to me was like a splash in the face with cold water or a ton of bricks because it's what, like I said, is like the key and, and it's funny to me now because in all the things I've learned now about BPD and I've watched a lot of interviews with people who have it or case studies or what have you, every single one of those people has said exactly what I'm saying right now, that the moment they were diagnosed was like the key to all of life's mysteries was unlocked. And that is very, very true of me. Like, I was just openly weeping reading this book. And, I mean, you got to understand, I've been trying so hard for so long to understand what has been wrong with me and have lost everything over and over and over again to this disorder. I have lost everyone I ever loved to this disorder. And I have tried to end my own life four different times, or at least planned on ending my own life four different times, and attempted to end my own life to near success once. And not once in all of the time until now have I understood why, or have I been able to fix it. And the reason is because I'm incapable of fixing it. It doesn't exist within me to understand what the problem is. Because I, I do not, I literally do not possess the concepts. And that's not to say I'm that helpless. I'm really not. But you're never going to get me to trust you until I trick myself into behaving like I trust or that I know how to trust. I've never shown someone trust because I don't know what trust is. So even if I have been telling myself, I trust my friend XYZ, I'm actually behaving in a way that is completely contradictory to trusting someone. So here's what happens with BPD. It is a non-stop pervasive, crippling fear of abandonment. If you have listened to this entire podcast, in a nutshell, that is all I have been saying on several different occasions. I, I have cut everyone out of my life to prevent them from cutting me out. Now, a good chunk of those people I should have cut out. And I'm glad that I did. Because unfortunately, the only way you get BPD is by being neglected. And I hate to break it to the world, but it's a pretty strong argument when it comes to the nature versus nurture arguments of mental health discussion. As far as we know, the only reason this order exists at all is because of child neglect. My parents have been telling me my whole life I'm a fucking asshole. For being the way I've been. 
my parents have shunned me as often as they possibly could have. And then they've brought me back in, only to shun me again. I never should have had to be around those people since birth, honestly. Like, I'm lucky to have survived. And that's all they reinforced to me daily in my time in the hospital, was that I am fucking lucky to be alive. So BPD, crippling fear of abandonment, pervasive. It causes you to be almost incapable of sustaining any relationship, be it a friendship, a romance, a family, or a job. Because you don't see the point in something being sustained. Because you've never benefited. I, a person with BPD, and I'm speaking for myself only here, but my experience with this, this disorder and how I've felt all throughout my life is that there's no point in believing that anything should be sustained because nothing has ever stayed before. Nothing has ever stuck around for me before. Now, the disgusting sadness of this is that that's all because of the, of the disorder. I've shunned everyone in my life because I have BPD, because I have been shunned. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I, I think I'm getting these statistics correct because I've read them a million and a half fucking times, and they cut me to my very core. But it's something like 8 per to 10% of people with borderline personality disorder kill themselves. 80% of people with borderline personality disorder attempt to kill themselves. Folks, I've literally, I'm in the, the 20 percentile of fucking living, of like existing. It's by sheer fucking luck that I am making it to my 44th birthday tomorrow. I'm turning 44 tomorrow and I'm simultaneously disgusted and relieved by that fact. And that's just real talk. I have no one except for the person that drove to Illinois to fucking rescue me when they let me out of the hospital. I spent a week in the hospital and was discharged because I didn't act like a fool during the week that I was there. I was uh, discharged a little bit early, so uh, I had to wait until Skipper McBarnberger could drive all the way from Ohio to Illinois to pick me up. And you see what's so sick about this is that I still, this person drove all this way to show me that she gives a fuck about me and I still don't trust her. That's how this works. This is how this has always worked. I'm sitting here in tears because I, I can't feel the reason that I'm grateful to her. I just know that I should be. 
I'm grateful for for her support, but I also know that I've got a long way to go before I'm healthy, and I know that every minute she's around me is not good for her. Because I, I literally don't know how to deal with other people, and I never have. It's by the luck that I ever got along with anyone. And you know what? I never did it for very long. So I think back on everything I've ever known. And all the people in my life that I ever loved. And I have to realize now and accept the fact that there's not going to be any closure. And that, that I'm not going to make those people feel better. And that I'm not going to make those people understand. And that it was absolutely largely my fault that all that shit happened and that they're not in my life anymore. It's 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 because I'm incapable of forgiveness and I'm incapable of even letting you get close enough for me to be able to forgive you when you fuck up. I have literally no tolerance for mistakes in other people and now I understand why. I'm not making excuses. I still feel like I should be in a hole somewhere all by myself. I still don't feel fit at all. Ever since I learned this, I am like a fucking peeled egg. Like, I am incredibly fragile right now. It's January 16th. I only spend a week in the hospital, and then I spend a week in like a crisis center, halfway house, homeless shelter kind of place. Until, or at three days or something, I think it was three days in the in the place. So, I mean, we're talking only a few days, and it's now January. That's because I've been just trying to fucking do life. Now knowing what I know, um, it changes everything. And I'm grateful that I have that knowledge. I, it's literally, like, in my mind I picture... This diagnosis like a glimmering golden key because now I know and now I can proceed with that with that knowledge of what has been the issue all along and it and it, it it's complicated and it's hard to understand but for months now I've just been trying to do my best to learn and um, I will say, in a nutshell, I'm, I'll probably get into this in detail later, but right now I don't want to. Um, the system has completely and utterly dropped the ball um, as far as I'm concerned. And so, and I mean, it wouldn't matter anyway, because with, with uh, BPD, the whole thing is really... There are no medications for it. If you are prescribed a medication for BPD, it is to treat the symptoms of it. Um, and there are no specific drugs made for the treatment of borderline. So, in a nutshell, you're prescribed... Any medicine you could be prescribed for BPD is prescribed off-label. Because they don't know how to... It, it, because the only way to fix it is to literally repair the neural pathways in the brain physically. To physically cause there to be connections that have never been there. And how you do that is by 
uh, DBT, which is, uh, God, all these fucking acronyms, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, and that involves mindfulness and being aware of, of one's own disorder in order to change behaviors to, to rewire the brain, quite literally. And so they told me in the hospitals that I'd have a lot of headaches um, simply because of being aware of my diagnosis. And this is fascinating to me. Simply because I now know that I have borderline personality disorder and, and reading about it and educating myself about what it is and what it means to me, I'll get... I'm having one right now because I'm talking about this. It's a very slight very dull pain in the front of my head, in, in my forehead, which is very distinct, and it is unlike any sensation I've ever felt before, and I, it comforts me, because I like to think that I, that's, that's the sensation of me healing myself. Um, because I'm not going to get much help um, when it comes to the medical community, and and that's, I think, a temporary situation. I think that as science gets better, they'll understand this better, and they'll be able to do more about it, but really the only treatment is dialectical behavioral therapy, and that really kind of means that a therapist is there for you when you're falling the fuck apart, and they are helping to coach you in healing yourself. And I'm pretty... I would like to think I'm pretty well-educated and armed with the ability to educate myself enough, and I'm self-aware enough that, yes, if I need a therapist, I will contact one, because obviously I, at the end of the day, will preserve myself. I, I went to the hospital for a reason. And now that I know what the deal is, I, I, I have something to to attack. But, I mean, it's it's... Five months later, kids, and I'm still laying here. I'm, I'm in a rocking chair with a blanket. Uh, a good chunk of my day is spent studying psychology. Uh, right now, I'm really into Carl Jung, which isn't anything new. But now, it's <laughs> serendipitous that I was already into Carl Jung, because now that's going to save my fucking life. And... Also, I'm studying Gnosticism still because that's also going to save my fucking life. Because really the only way I'm going to be able to heal myself and convince myself to stay in this world is to believe that this world is inherently flawed. Because otherwise I have been fighting for no reason for my entire life. And I refuse to accept that. I refuse to accept that that's what some architect wants for me. Um, I'd rather believe that I'm, I'm something beautiful doing my best to live a good life down here in the mud. That's a much more comforting worldview, in my opinion that there is something beautiful and holy inside me that is irrefutable and that this existence that I am currently in is simply God remembering 
what it was like to experience everything. To me, that is a much more beautiful existence than one in which I am struggling against a rigged game that I already am certain will wind me up in hell, if this isn't itself hell. No thank you. That worldview is fucking dreadful and it's no wonder we're in the shape we're in. So Gnosticism, yay. Carl Jung, yay. The two things are very closely related, and right now, what is currently prioritized in my studies is the study of archetypes. And the reason for that is borderline personality disorder causes your personality, and here's where we get into the personality disorder part, my persona I should say personas. Now, this is not dissociative identity disorder. I do not have multiple personalities. But I do have a lot of masks. So I'm always me. But I'm also projecting the me that is best suited for the situation as I see it. This has led to me embodying a series of archetypal personalities throughout my life and when I look back now it is so obvious to me and anybody I don't know who listens to this but if anybody who's known me for a while listens to this and and thinks about what they know of me I have always been or or strove to be like the penultimate picture of of an aesthetic or of of a of an archetypal thing like i've always lived something a little bit too much and very passionately case in point what was i just doing i was the explorer i was on the hero's journey i was a living fucking tarot card and that's an archetype the musician the artist the traveler the wizard, all of these things, all of these names I've given myself and personas, depending on the flavor of art or the flavor of music, you know me as Raucous Mikey. You might also know me as Mikey C. You might also know me as Mikey Crawford. You might also know me as Mike Crawford. All of these are me. But each of those is a very different person. This, in a person with borderline, is exaggerated. And I should say right now that if, if, you, if you hear things that I'm saying and you see those things in yourself, that doesn't mean you're borderline. Everybody has these tendencies within them. But in the case of the borderline personality, these, these tendencies are all-consuming. So because you're so afraid of being abandoned, you try your very best to please everyone around you, or at least project the image to everyone around you that you think is most suited for survival in that environment. 
that's the way when I when I want to put my own little personal touch on it. That's very much how I view looking back my interaction with other people. Nobody I've always been crying and alone and talking about how nobody knows me and that's my own doing. Nobody knows me because each person that knows me knows the version of me that I needed that person to know. And that is just saying that out loud gives me a pit in my stomach. Like, do you know how awful that makes me feel? That makes me feel as though I've had no option but to be disingenuous to everyone around me. For my own goddamn sanity. I'm not very sane, by the way. This is painfully clear to me now. I've got a lot of work to do. I still very much want to go to the woods by myself and just sit there and work all this out because I need to meditate and I need to learn and I need to put this right if I can. I don't have a lot of life left and honestly, knowing what I know now, the odds are extremely stacked against me living much longer and I refuse to take that. That prognosis is bullshit. I've never listened to anyone in authority before, and I'm not going to start now. I ain't going out like that. I waited all this time to know what the deal was, and now I know what the deal is. And I know kind of what to do about it. It's a very complicated thing. And all I can do now is try to heal, learn how to be a normie, or actually just pretend to be a normie well enough that I can exist with the rest of you without anybody crying, I guess. I don't know. We're going to talk more. Um, I'm trying to keep this in short little bits because this is heavy, and I'd, this is spiritual meatloaf right now. And <laughs> That's funny. I just want to wrap it up here because I'm I'm unpacking I'm unpacking this disorder as I go and I'm just getting to where I can talk about it uh, with any confidence um, and I, I'm very raw still I'm very moody and I wish I could immediately just stop those things about myself but I, I definitely can't um, the unfortunate thing also is that it, because of the mood stabilization centers of my brain being completely fucked and foreign to me, it turns out I've been flying off the handle my whole life and thought I was rational. See, these are the things that you can tell hurt me, are, I've been so self-confident and I, I've been so self-reliant. But at the same time, I've been really fucking dependent. I'm dependent right now on the kindness of others. And when I think back, there were a lot of fucking times I was dependent on the kindness of others only to turn around and hate that person. And I don't even feel bad about that. But obviously I do because it hurts me right now. It hurts me really bad to, to realize that. 
it's just so shocking to me that all those times I thought I was acting completely rationally, I was having an, an intensely passionate reaction instead of responding. I don't have anything left. I don't even have keepsakes. Everything that was in that van that didn't go in my book bag and go to the hospital is gone. But I don't really want any reminders. The hardest thing for me to do right now is to let go. But I think that's what's happening. I think I'm remembering all these things and all these times with all these people because I can't fix it. And I can't apologize to those people. And I can't make those people know the real me because I don't know who the real me is. What I've got to do is wrangle all these archetypes and do my shadow work and do my best to keep a lid on it. I'm like Pandora that has to put everything back in the box. And I'm up for the challenge. But I'm also really old and I'm really fucking tired. And right now I feel like someone went over my fucking soul with a cheese grater. <laughs> but we're gonna keep going. Even if we don't drive. These desperate times are nothing new. And there's a part of me that's crazier than you And all these devils, they control my every move And you would not believe the things they made me do Yeah!